Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. Trying to choose the right supplements for the right horses often feels like a chore, and you have enough chores as it is. Fortunately, there's Equithrive, whose mission is to make this whole nutrition equation easier on you, and much more beneficial to your horses. Equithrive's lineup of pelleted supplements are developed with care, backed by science, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Not to mention Picky Eater Approved. Whether you need advanced joint care for your equine athlete, gut or metabolic support, Equithrive is your one-stop shop for feed tub fortification. Do your horses and yourself a favor and visit Equithrive.com. Use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF and get 20% off your first order, plus free and fast shipping nationwide. Don't forget to use HUMBLEHOOF, all one word, to get 20% off your first order at Equithrive.com. A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. I first heard Dr. Jenny Hagen teach a few years ago during the NAEP symposium. She was giving webinars during COVID and I was super impressed by her thoughtfulness and just how amazingly smart she is. She is not only a veterinarian in Germany, but she's also a farrier. She works in chiropractic. She works in equine orthopedics. She's done biomechanics research. She's had training in functional anatomy, even myofascial work. And she has a great deal of published studies on various things like what we apply to the horse's foot and how it affects their movement, how it affects soft tissue, and so much more. She even has some of her webinars posted on YouTube. And I reached out to Dr. Hagen because she has done some research looking into things that I've wondered myself. Stuff like, what does wedging do to the soft tissue in the back of the limb? And how do we look at mediolateral balance? What is mediolateral balance? And how can our trimming and hoof care practices affect a horse's movement and biomechanics? Dr. Hagen was super gracious in allowing me to talk to her and answer some of these questions that I've wondered about for quite some time. All right. So why don't you tell us a little about your veterinary journey and how you became interested in hoof care? Um, well, I always wanted to be a vet. I'm not sure why, but uh, we always had animals and we also had, I don't know, horses and I was riding and my parents were vets. So I was kind of in the field already when I was very young, so five, six, seven years old. And it was always my first dream. So I made it. I had the grades and I had the possibility to study on my favorite university. But before I could go from school to the study, I had uh, six months 
for yeah, actually free time. And I wanted to earn some money and I asked the farrier who was chewing my horses if I could just assist him. Because I thought I don't want to be a waiter or working in a shop selling clothes or whatever. I wanted to make something with horses and yeah, I liked the handcraft already. And I asked him if he would take me for maybe a few weeks or a few months and he was not even answering the questions. So he was just working and doing, doing his chewing and not really answering. And I repeated my question. So would you just take me for a few days or maybe weeks? And I would just try to try my best and uh, lift the hoofs and help you whenever I can. And then he have, again, he did not answer. And then I said, is it because I'm a girl? <laughs> and then he was kind of, no, 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 that's not the, the reason. So uh, you can drive one day. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> but then we had one day together. And then he asked in the evening, would you come a second day? And from two days, we went, uh, I think, five months together. And he was a very, very good teacher, a very good bus. And yeah, so I drove with him, was chewing horses and already were able to trim and yeah, maybe clinching and finishing and whatever you do as assistant, I could already do. And then I started, of course, my veterinary study, but I came always as semester breaks again back to him and continued. So I learned step by step how to shape a shoe, how to nail a shoe. So I think in total we kind of I don't know three four years together and then of course I focused a little bit more on my vet staffs I did some other practica I learned a lot more yeah but uh, the love for the handcraft was always trimming so in, when I finished I wrote my PhD and I had the first project there was a request for doing a research in how trimming influence the hoof morphology the gait pattern and the alignment of the toe and then I came back to the topic and I came back to the handcraft. I started uh, trimming as a side job to my university career. Yeah, and in the end, uh, I continued farther and farther and I started to be part-time in the horse clinic and part-time in the research and part-time in the horse training school of the university. And that was actually the perfect combination to also make my exam as a farrier and to graduate farther doing my postdoc thesis in this topic. And I don't know, it was always my favorite, yeah, let's yeah. say, topic to develop farther. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and by handcraft, do you mean like hand-making shoes? Oh, I liked everything. So I really liked in the beginning the trimming. So I really liked to work on the hoofs and I always enjoyed also interaction with the horse because I think lifting a hoof and trimming it is also kind of trust between the animal and the farrier. So the, the interaction is different than being a vet. So if you're a vet, you're just coming there, the horse is sick, maybe you put some pain to him because you give injections or you do something then you disappear and as a farrier you meet them very regular yeah? like like four six eight weeks and then you see him again and i see the horses as kind of colleagues so i always like the handcraft by the pure like trimming guiding a knife using a tongue and shaping a shoe i like to forge uh, when i was a little bit more fit i was also competing so i really like the pure handcraft i also the application to the horse much more than the typical vet stuff, I would say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I know, obviously, like in addition to doing all of that, you've done a lot of research um, on many topics related to hoof care and biomechanics. I've seen so many articles from you. I've seen webinars that you've done. I've seen um, talks that you've given. 
And a few years ago, you had looked at the effect of wedging on tendon injuries, like the superficial digital flexor tendon and the deep digital flexor tendon. And this was really interesting to me because I see a lot of cases involving the DDFT, you know, that that I work with. So I was really interested to hear more about this. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the study and your findings. Yeah, so we have to make it a bit more clear. It was not a toe wedge, a heel wedge. So it was not just to elevate the heels and how it influences the tendons. It was also how a toe angle change influences the tendon strain. So we uh, used horses with, with different conformations and a quite high number. So I know that 35 horses is not really huge, but in comparison to other studies, we tried to find a few more sound horses. And the aim was have a look on both flexor tendons in relation to a change in toe angulation. So from very flat to quite steep. So we use 20 degree, 10 degree, 5 degree uh, toe wedges, the neutral position, and then 5, 10, and 20 degree heel wedges. And the background why we did it was actually that there are so many recommendations how to shoe uh, the hoofs to relieve the tendons and ligaments. Like uh, there was a theory from other research groups who said uh, if you have a steep orientation, of course, you can relieve the deep digital flexor tendon. But if you lower the angle, so if you make a flat conformation, there was statement, the research statement also, that you can relieve the ligament and the superficial flexor tendon. But in the field, we already recognize that it's not so easy. So and we checked a little bit the methods of the study and they just used five horses, they were sedated, they were standing on one leg. Yeah, they also did the research with uh, wedges. So we thought, okay, that's maybe not so practical and five horses are maybe a little bit too less to have a statement for the whole population. So that's why we repeated the study a little bit more practical with more horses, different conformations. They were not sedated. They were standing equal on both legs. So that's why we tried it. And in research, uh, the strain of the tendons or the load on the tendons was just calculated in mathematical models. So this is also not really a physiological yeah, proof, I would say. And it was a very good study in 1996 and 1994 from Remesma, who did already some or put some sensors into the tendons and did some shoeing and tried to figure out what happens to the tendons. But he could not really say something about the superficial flexor tendon. So in the end, the research to the point where we did the study agreed that you can relieve the deep digital flexor tendon by elevation of the heels. But for the superficial flexor tendons, if you checked all prior studies, there was not really an agreement. So that's why we tried to, how I said, repeat the study and we did measurements of the tendons and we checked how they behave if you elevate and lower the, the heels or the toe angle. And we could figure out that actually both tendons react in the same way, which is for the treatment for the orthopedical management quite important. Yeah, so that you know okay, if you would like to relieve the superficial flexor tendon, we know now that you actually can ele or should elevate the heels too. Yeah, But you always have to see these findings in a kind of um, rehabilitation protocol Yeah, so that you also react and uh, change in relation to the rehabilitation status of the patient. Yeah, so, And there are also some 
other techniques and showing options to um, yeah, improve the effect of the toe angle change much more. For example, you can add for heel elevation a little bit palmar support. This is even increasing the effect of the heels and the, the wedges. So, yeah. Wow. That's why we did the study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah, I mean, I, I have had cases where a horse had a bowed tendon, um, you know, a, a tear in the superficial digital flexor tendon where, uh, you know, they were pretty, the, the team was pretty adamant about not raising the heels. So that's, that's also a very interesting thing to hear too, from the, that finding. Um, but yeah, how I said, you have to see it in a context. So usually I like uh, so tendon patients. <laughs> I mean, they are really poor horses, but for the rehabilitation, they are actually really interesting because as I said, you have to adapt your shoeing. So for example, the heel elevation, in the context of the progress of healing. So you have three phases. So you have the acute inflammation phase. So in this phase, you can make heel elevation, for example, much higher and you can add a little bit more and longer palmar support because you would like to relieve the tendon. And usually, horse is in a kind of box rest or controlled environment and controlled movement. And as soon as you go to the phase where you have the proliferation of the tissue. So again, the tendon try to connect somehow. Yeah, So a lot of fibrous scar tissue find each other and make connection of the structure again. So, but there you can already start to maybe lower the heels a little bit again. And you can also play a little bit with the length, length of the palmar support because the owner or the physiotherapist, the manual therapist can already starting in statics to increase muscle strength again, proprioception, coordination, balance, yeah, in, in box or paddock. And then some exercises, you continue. And then you have, for example, the remodeling phase where the tendon learns a lot how to function. Yeah, so the fibers uh, align again, the orientation, the cross-links, they find each other again. And this is a very important phase because here actually now you have to train the horse, you have to walk the horse, and this is not a long time. So it's not that the horse has to be in box rest for three, four, five, six months. Yeah. So you actually have a few weeks in box rest, then you start the static training. And then after maybe in my usual practice, after six to eight weeks, we already start controlled uh, walking and training to improve their yeah, tendon structure again. And then, of course, you have to adapt again. So then you can play again with the hoof angle, you can play with the length, you can make it lighter, you can make it flatter again. So this is a very dynamic uh, protocol. Yeah? So we don't have black and white. It's not just elevation, elevation of the heels and lowering the heels. There's something in the middle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And and obviously you mentioned, you know, you talk about like making a plan for that individual horse with the veterinarian. In one uh, article that I read, you talked about, uh, you know, looking at the horse's stance and movement to make that plan. So what would you specifically look for to know whether a horse might benefit from having like a modification in their package that they have on? Mm-hmm. So so very first, when I, independent which disease or which injury I meet, I always ask if I have a new patient, so which status of rehabilitation do we have? So is it a very acute injury? Is it a chronic disorder? Is it already starting to be trained a little bit? Or yeah, is it to heal? So is it a chronic inflammation or chronic injury which might not be able to recover again because polytrochlosis or arthrosis, we can't really heal? Or is it something where we have success and we will end in a hopefully sound horse? 
And then, of course, you have to, dependent on the stage, you have to decide what benefits the best. So how severe, how strong can the modification be? Yeah, so the more acute and the more severe a damage, the more aggressive I can create my modifications in the shoe because the side effects might be there, but it's a, it's for a limited time usually. It's for healing and the intended effects should at least uh, cover the side effects or should be over the side effects. So that's uh, the first thing I ask. And then, of course, it's depending also for the vet and the owner. So what is the... Yeah, let's say compliance and the management, uh, the compliance of the owner and the management of the horse. Because uh, if I would like to, I can make a perfect chewing and I would like to relieve a structure. But if the management, for example, the keeping, the motion, the physiotherapist, the pain management, whatever, is not working, then I can do the perfect chewing, but it's not helping. Yeah, then I should, I have a perfect chewing plan. I spoke with the farrier. But then it's just not possible to apply the shoe in a correct way because the horse is still working or walking on the pasture or in the field. Also, the financial limitations of the owner is sometimes interesting to have a very, yeah, let's say, sustainable shoeing plan. So it's not really helping if I make a huge expensive shoeing for one or two times and then the owner says, yeah, but now I can't afford it anymore and then all the work is for nothing. So that's why you should also speak with the owner to make a very good plan. And since I'm also a manual therapist and trainer in rehabilitation, I always try to involve the vet or better people who are really experienced in training and rehabilitation of horses, that they come out of the relief posture, that they have a physiological motion pattern again, so that you decrease the side effects of the, let's say, box rest or management of the horse. Yeah. So there are so many different factors <laughs> that should be considered to find a good solution for each horse that it's not just the shoeing. It's always a teamwork, I would say. Yeah. And is that like, you know, you're, if you're checking on the progress to see if you're happy with how it's going, is that looking at ultrasounds? Is it looking at MRIs? Is it looking at the horse's movement? Or how are you tracking their improvement? Yeah. So, of course, for the for the initial injury or damage, the diagnostic imaging is a very, very good tool. So whatever you have or whatever is necessary, control x-rays or ultrasound should be done if it's possible. I mean, I'm also working in the field and sometimes very hard to convince the owner to have a more than two times imaging. But yeah, at least it should be done to make a diagnosis and it should be done in the progress of healing so that you know what happens. Or at least if you say, okay, clinical wise, the horse is walking better, is looking sound, we would like to go to the next step, then you should have uh, imaging again. And for me, more important is often the clinical symptoms or signs. So how does the horse move? How is it loading the limbs? How is, for example, the hoof angle? If you have chronic pain, usually the hoof angulation is uneven between the at least, at least four limbs. Uh, how is it? Uh, how is the lameness? So how is the lameness developing? And I'm using often in these patients hoof beat. That's a system to measure the timings and the movement of the limbs during swing phase and stance phase. And we see some pattern where you could say, okay, now we are going more and more in the, let's say, physiological status again. It's developing, it's changing, the gait pattern is changing, and I'm satisfied. Or I see, okay, no, he's going back to a, let's say, more severe or more problematic situation. So the disease 
uh, increase again. Yeah, so this is also something I try to do as follow-up measurements, and that's not so expensive for the owner. So usually it's a mixture of everything. So I do the usually the, the typical um, veterinary imaging. I do a typical lameness examination, but then I also do my uh, manual therapist evaluation so that I also check the muscle status and the function and range of motion of the segments of the body. And then if I can, I do my objective gait analysis to have an overview and see, uh, and I have a monitoring of the patient. Yeah. So it's statics and dynamics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that sounds great. And I've, I've seen, um, my friend has a hoofbeat unit and I've seen how cool that is to monitor how they move in their biomechanics. So that's super interesting too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a substitution of the normal, um, older versions of the objective lameness evaluation systems like equinosis or colosis. So they are put on the head and the pelvis. Then you can track, of course, the degree of lameness. And also always in the background of your knowledge about lameness diagnostics. Um, but the advantage to track the hoofs is a little bit that you see also the effect of your orthopedic treatments. Yeah. So if, and also of your training. So I have, for example, the mare with very uneven heat, uh, hoofs, sorry, with very uneven hoofs. And this mare had also a tendon injury indeed. And therefore, due to, to the chronic uneven load, the hoof angle was uneven. And we made some shoeing plans, and she was also very asymmetric in her timings, so from the measurements. So then, of course, you make a shoeing plan for the specific course. You can check it with the hoofbeat system, and then you see if your treatment of your shoeing is working. And I could see that she was improving quite a lot with her function and also with her symmetry between the forelimbs. So I knew, okay, the shoeing is helping, but it was not completely fine. So I did two times the shoeing and the third time I also did my manual tra uh, treatment and a uh, little training and I measured again and she was almost zero difference between left and right. So I had to prove that I can in, uh, increase or I can improve the load between both forelimbs in the hope that the structures and also the hoofs and the whole body becomes more functional, more even in the load and the healing is in progress. If I would see that she becomes very asymmetric again in her measurements and I, if, I, if I feel it in the muscles and the joints, then I know I have to change my shoeing and my training. Yeah. And I know that we've talked a lot about, you know, the dorsal palmar balance of, um, you know, wedging or looking at the, the alignment that way. But um, something that I know you've spent a lot of time studying is landing and loading of the limb for mediolateral balance. And that's something where I feel probably I second guess myself the most. Um, and I know a lot of farriers will say to, you know, trim or shoe the horse so that it lands level, but a lot will say kind of the opposite, um, or they'll focus more on the joint spacing or static mediolateral balance looking at a radiograph. So I saw that you did a webinar on this topic even, but um, in your experience and research, what are, you know, the pros and cons of these ways of assessing mediolateral balance? Mm, yeah, so I'm not a big fan of the term balance because it means everything and nothing. <laughs> yeah, so let's say we, we can speak about static um, improvement of the alignment of, for example, the, the toe and the hoof capsule. And then we have uh, the theory or the suggestion that we can yeah, trim and sure hoof on a horse to achieve a leveled landing. Yeah, so yeah, there are two approaches. Sometimes you can manage to 
fulfill both in one patient and sometimes not. <laughs> now we need the question, what is actually, or what is influencing the gait pattern of a horse? And there we have, or the gait pattern of the horse yeah, is dependent on, of, uh, on a lot of neurological processes. So we have a motoric learning and we have a motoric memory, everybody, also at least, uh, let's say, more developed animals and humans. So we have, of course, some uh, areas in the central nervous system. For example, we have in the brain one area which is really responsible for uh, intended movement. Yeah, so the prefrontal motoric center has a motion idea and this is a very wanted intended movement. So if I would really do a very specific writing or if I would like to, or the horse need to learn a new task and I don't know, dressage, for example, then this motoric center is active and it need to learn how to do a new movement. But as soon as you repeat the same movement a lot of times, then, of course, it's not really in a wanted intended um, situation. Then it's getting more and more optimized yeah, because prefrontal cortex needs some space, some capacity to react on environmental changes, to learn new tasks. So he gives the responsible responsibility for optimized movements to the spinal cord and to the brainstem, brainstem. So that's why actually the horse, if it walks, don't need to think about how to make a step. Yeah, it's just walking. It's the same for us. If you stand up and walk on a straight line, you can look to everybody, you can say hi to everybody, but you don't think extensor flexor, extensor flexor. <laughs> yeah. So this is very optimized. So in the end, the motion pattern, also in stance phase of a horse, is optimized and it's individual, repeatable, and stable as a fingerprint. So I would actually, my adult horses in my studies, who I measured maybe five, six, seven years, I can recognize on their stance phase pattern. So if I look at the measurements, I can directly see this is Charlie, this is Max, yeah, whatever. So that's why this is actually a very sound behavior that we have an automized movement during stance phase. If we achieve or if we try to change it, yeah, really we really have to think about the first question: Is it necessary? Yeah, because the lateral landing, for example, and landing on the lateral part of the wall is uh, done by one third of the horses in walk and up to 82 percentage of horses in trot, for example. Yeah, yeah. So there are so many different research groups. It's not just us. Yeah, <laughs> We did some measurements, but also the good uh, measurements from the researchers in Utrecht or in uh, Uppsala or also in the US. There were some results. Everybody showed that lateral landing is a very, very natural and typical landing pattern. That's the first thing. Yeah, some horses land leveled, then it's fine Yeah, by nature. Um, and one, some horses show heel landing, some of them show toe landing, some of them show medial landing. So then you have different landing pattern. Yeah? And now it's the question, is it a problem for the horse? Yeah, for example, if you as a human walk in front of me and I put my senses on you, I can maybe see you land on your lateral heel and you roll over your medial big toe or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and then I ask, please change it because for me it looks not nice yeah so now change it walk different if you're sound if you don't have any problems for you it would be very exhausting and would feel very strange and actually you would not be able to change it by now yeah you need a, a mirror and specific training 
to visualize it and to learn a new gait pattern. And the same for the horse. I can't switch it usually in a sound horse from uh, lateral wall landing to level landing. The most of the horses compensate our orthopedic trimming or shoeing. So if I, we, we did it, so we tried to force horses uh, which were landing lateral or medial and we trimmed them and we also glued or uh, shot them with side wedges to force them a little bit to a flat footed to a level landing and at least the half of the horses compensated the effect totally so even four degree media or lateral side wedge was not enough to change their gait pattern yeah, so that's the first thing. Also the same with trimming. So we tried to uh, measure different trimming methods and we also did the normal uh, toe axis theory. So we, we trimmed the horses according to have a straight toe axis. Then we trimmed horses with two other uh, theories with, which are very popular in Germany. Then there was another research group who tried to figure out what is trimming according to achieve a leveled landing. So they did it again. They tried to trim them so that they have to land leveled. And again, most of the horses compensated. But then you have some horses which are changing. So you glue or you shoe them with the side wedge or you trim the lateral wall. And yes, they change their landing pattern a little bit or they already land flat. So maybe you, you achieve it. But then you have to check, is there a correlation between the initial contact at the lateral wall, for example, and the load during mid-stance? Because again, in a lot of horses, I think also, I think from my research, more than the half of the horses don't have a correlation between the initial contact and the load during mid-stance. So there are some horses and quite a lot of horses who has a lateral landing, but in the moment where you have them in mid-stance or in stance in front of you, the center of force is almost in the middle of the hoof. So if you now change or trim them and you cut the lateral wall or you do a medial side wedge, then you might force them to land level, but you change the load distribution and the more elevated side has the higher load. So in the end, the mid-stance is actually the phase where you have the highest peak, the highest load of the limb, and for the longest time. The initial contact also has a little force peak, but it's very short, and it's not as high as in mid-stance. Yeah, so if you look at the graph, if you land, yeah, then from zero, from swing phase from zero, with initial contact, forces increase quite fast and quite high. Then you have a little stabilization, so the horse is maybe sliding on the ground. You have the elastic deformation of the hoof capsule. You have, I don't know, any kind of, let's say, shock absorption. And that means after the initial peak, the force is lower shortly. And then in the moment when the contralateral limb is going to be lifted in swing to swing phase, you have the maximum load of the st uh, supporting limb. So that means the force is increasing quite high and quite long until breakover is initiated and starting to reduce load again. So that means actually during mid-stance we have the higher load. And if we force the horses to land level with the side effect that we change or that we have uneven load of the median lateral half in mid-stance, I would say we make more damage. Wow. Was it logical? <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, also something. And then sometimes there is a reason that horses land lateral, not just from the neurological status, also from their body posture. 
because if you have a weakness in the thoracic sling, they usually try to support their trunk with the forelimbs. So they have a very narrow posture of the forelimbs. So they stand with the elbows more or less close to the trunk, to the thorax. And that means you have a very, very narrow position of the limbs. That means in movement, the horses actually don't really have enough strength in their thoracic sling to have the supporting limb a little bit more wider and to guide their limbs straight. Instead, they have to make a very narrow movement of the limbs, and this creates an uneven lateral, usually lateral landing uh, on the hoof, sometimes also medial, depends a little bit on the instability. Yeah, so this is also a fact which is definitely influencing the gait pattern of the horse and how we can influence it. If we have a weakness in the thoracic sling, we can trim and shoe how much we want. Yeah, it will not be helpful and not be changing gait pattern. Right. So in that instance, it would be more helpful to do, you know, have the owner do exercises that could strengthen the thoracic yeah. sling. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So then you, well, if, if the horse really has a problem, there's also sometimes um, the most aggressive factor which can immediately change the gait pattern is pain. Yeah. Mm. So whenever I see a very, very sudden change in the gait pattern, so I measure a horse, which is actually sound, and suddenly I see from now a very sudden change from, let's say, leveled landing or lateral landing to heel landing. Yeah. This can be already an indicator that the horse gets a laminitis or has some other sources of pain. The opposite is, if I have a horse which is maybe short, very uncomfortable or has a certain lameness because of polyphrolosis and I can solve or I can at least reduce the pain, then usually I have also an effect on the gait pattern. Yeah, or, or if I train a horse long term or if I improve, for example, long term the load of the hoof, also the mediolateral load, then I sometimes also have long term an effect on the motion pattern and on the landing yeah but never with just one trim and then it has to be yes yeah? so usually if i just try to shorten and force something it's not very sustainable and it's not working yeah so in terms of looking at that i know that you're you don't really like the term of mediolateral balance but in terms of looking at how we should be yeah. kind of focusing on that trim and approach to the horse do you think that like every single farrier should have one of these like you know biomechanic sensor units or is it are you know are we looking at radiographs or <laughs> I guess this is I guess it's kind of this eternal question you know in my mind too <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah I know what you mean but actually it's not so complicated <laughs> because we have the capsule yeah so um, I'm first of all I'm not a big fan of uh, x-rays for assessing the joint space symmetry of the digital joints because that we know that there are so many factors decreasing the reliability of the, of the data. So we did it also. We did some x-rays and we tried to measure the joint space symmetry in, uh, I think we had 15 horses. And then it's, for example, you can influence the symmetry, the joint space symmetry by just putting or by the position of the polo blocks. So there are very few centimeters, so two, five, ten centimeters difference between before and after, and then you see immediately a change of the joint space symmetry. Or if the horse is very relaxed and you make 10 x-rays of the same toe and you measure the joint space symmetry, although the setup is completely same. So we glued the setup on the ground and just put the horses on and off. And still you see 10 different values of joint space symmetry. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, if you really have a 
crooked horse. Yeah. So if you have a severe limb deformation, then of course I check it. Yeah. I check the joint space symmetry and I look if I can change it a little bit. But for normal trimming or if I just have a normal horse in front of me, sound horse or you know, let's say common orthopedic patients without uh, limb deformities, I don't use the joint space symmetry for assessment of the so-called mediolateral balance. Yeah. If I really, there are options to measure it. As I said, we can put some pressure measurement sensors under it and we see the center of force. I can sometimes see it also in the hoofbeat system, but a normal farrier or vet don't have it. Yeah. So we need something where you see, okay, this hoof is more or less equal loaded and therefore I think the best indicator is still the hoof capsule itself. So whenever you see pushed up bulbs, whenever you see uh, the coronary band is bended, when you have stress rings, where you have uh, flares and cracks and you see hemorrhagy, so yeah, so the hoof capsule is telling you actually quite good where you have the highest load. And as I said, during midstands, we have the highest peak. It's usually in short, it's the doubles of the impact peak. Yeah. And we have it lasting the longest period of the stance phase. So this phase, in my opinion, is shaping the hoof much more than the landing. And the horse is standing a lot of hours on his foot. So not moving, just standing. So this is uh, the, the midstance phase is also a very static phase. So you can compare the alignment of the limb during stance in front of you with the mid-stance during walking. And I would say when you level or if you trim the hoof according to a more or less straight axis, depending a little bit on the limb conformation, so we should respect the limb conformation, but if you straighten it as much as possible, if the coronary bend is parallel to the ground, if the walls are more or less equal in height, if the bulbs are equal in height, if we don't have any cracks and flares, then I would say this hoof is at least in stance and mid stance more or less equal loaded and not uneven. And yeah, in a very ideal horse, then we have maybe also a good effect on the landing. But if not, it's not really a problem. We just assess it. For example, the lateral landing is a real problem. Then we can always make a grinding of the lateral branch. We can use some shock absorption. So there are so many different things we can do for the horse. We can shorten the intervals that it's not getting more and more severe during the next weeks. Yeah, so there are less aggressive options to influence the gait pattern without forcing something. And as I said, um, you don't need fancy systems to assess it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, this has been super interesting. I'm really excited to kind of hear some of this research, but also just talk about like the day in and day out of looking at these feet and kind of reading where, you know, what they might be telling us in terms of their stress patterns and things like that. So thank you for being willing to chat about it. And do you have anything, you know, that you want to share as like last minute advice for veterinarians or farriers or anything that maybe we didn't touch on today? Mm, I would, I would say look at the horse more comprehensive. So on both sides, <laughs> so I know that farriers are trained to look at the hoofs, but we make these uh, in the conferences I am or the workshops I give, we more and more focus on joint learning between veterinarians and farriers so that we have both disciplines in one room or in one uh, riding arena. And then we assess the horse really from neck, back, muscle status, thoracic sling, 
gate pattern. Um, we discuss it between the groups and then we go for, to the hoofs and see how they reflect the load from the proximal locomotor system, how they might influence the gate pattern, what we can do so that you see the whole horse. So sometimes I miss it a little bit because everybody stares or check the hoofs, yeah, but they miss the problems in the proximal locomotor system of the horse. And they stick so much to their ideals, yeah, in particular the veterinarians. They just know they need to straight toe axis and they need a leveled landing and that's their big aim <laughs> and they forget that there are so many different factors influencing it and then it's sometimes not possible because nature is not symmetrical yeah so we have a lot of variations that just have to be functional and fitting to the horse and then the veterinarian makes stress to the farrier so you have a lot of pressure and the farrier sometimes is not able to see problems in neck and back and then he's trying his best and it's not working and then everybody's unsatisfied so that's what i would like to give uh, for everybody don't stick to ideals and see the whole horse yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for your time. And I really appreciate you being willing to um, chat with me across the ocean. So <laughs> thanks again. I'm, I'm very happy. It is a big honor and a big pleasure that you asked me. So I really hope that I could say something valuable for your auditory. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too, so we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.